It's really good to be back with you today. And a week after Christmas, I took off with my family, just relaxed with the family. But last week, I had the privilege to be a part of a preaching class, actually, at the Master's Seminary, where all of our young guys go, Andrew and Winston and Connor and and even Michael, uh, who's out in Rancho now. But about 40 pastors from around the country gathered, and they were also from around the world. Guys from Texas, New Hampshire, uh, Tennessee, Oklahoma, Florida. But there were also pastors from Israel and from Germany and from uh, Malawi and Canada and Australia and, and more. And it was good to be with fellow preachers that are all committed to what we're committed to here at Grace, uh, the expositional preaching of the Word of God, the, the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God, the authoritative Word of God, and not just knowing it and preaching it, but living it. So they're all committed to the same things we are here. It reminds me of 1 Thessalonians 2.13. tells us that the Word of God does its work in those who believe. And that happens through every part of life, in, in pleasure and in pain and in joy and in grief. And today in Romans 9, verses 1 through 5, we're going to see Paul's unceasing grief over unbelief. His unceasing grief over unbelief. Now, grief is usually something we experience when someone dies, right? We, we're sad, we're we're losing a relationship, a loved one, or even in our life when, when a relationship is broken or taken away. And grief is a strong emotion. It's often accompanied by tears and by sadness. What we're going to see today is the unceasing grief that Paul had and he experienced deeply over people who were rejecting Christ. The very real burden of a heart for the lost, a loving concern for people's souls. So please open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 9, and please stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of God. It's the only perfect part of the worship service. Romans 9, I'll read verses 1 through 5. We're going to look only at verses 1 through 3 today, but I'm going to read 1 through 5. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are the Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Lord, I pray today that you would do your work in our hearts that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word. And most of all, above all, that we would see the glory of Christ. All for your glory, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I don't think I've ever told you this before, but Romans chapter 9 is one of my favorite verses, uh, excuse me, chapters in the whole Bible. 
One of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible, I love Romans 8. I love the high point of Scripture that it is, but I also love Romans 9. And I know that there is this temptation, you're going through Romans, and we climb the mountaintop of Romans 8, and it's very easy to be at the peak of the mountain there and look across the other peaks and see Romans 12 out in the distance and be tempted to jump over there, to leap from Romans 8 to Romans 12. I mean, it looks so inviting. It looks so applicable to our daily life. Why don't we just skip chapters 9 through 11 and jump to chapter 12? I mean, we've been swimming in some deep theological waters, but we need a break. Why fight the current, the strong current of God's sovereignty and salvation when we could settle down and get really practical? And it's very easy to think that way. But if we skip the density, the determination of God, and even the deep things of God in Romans 9 through 11, then we don't have the gospel message in all its fullness. Because 9 through 11 explains God's behind-the-scenes knowledge and workings. It is good for us to take what's next in Romans. It is good for us to receive these truths and to live them where the rubber meets the road in the Christian life. A lot of people see no connection between Romans 9 through 11 and chapters 1 through 8, or 12 through 16 for that matter. Chapters 1 through 8 are all about how people are made righteous by God through faith in Christ, how God works in and for his righteous people. Chapters 12 through 16 is about how righteous people live. So in between, you've got three confusing chapters, basically. Three confusing chapters. You know, it's easy to ask, why are they in Romans? Why are they here? Now here on the threshold of Romans 9, Paul is still on the mountaintop of Romans 8. This is why I had our youth and our anchor students recite the whole chapter again today. I want you to grasp that it connects, that it gels, that it's part of the picture, it's seamless, it jives with the rest of Romans. And here in Romans 9 through 11, the doctrines of God's sovereignty and election, bedrock of the gospel, how what happens in in God's economy, under God's direction, and also how we are responsible for every decision we make. So Romans 8 lands with this high point of confidence. We want to shout it from the rooftops, how God guarantees our final perseverance because our salvation isn't based on our will or our strength. But God called us. He opened our hearts to the gospel. He is going to carry us to final glory. We saw the golden chain of salvation in Romans 8, 29, and 30, the ordo salutis, the order of salvation, foreknowledge and predestination and calling and justification and glorification. But it begs the question, what about the Jews? Are they excluded? God called them. God came to them. But most rejected Christ. So is there any hope for them? I want you to remember what Paul said about the gospel in chapter 1, verse 16. 
That the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So anyone who is ever going to get saved is going to get saved by grace through faith in the Messiah, in Christ. God is a saving God. And Romans 9 through 11 takes us into the deep end of the pool regarding who God is and how he works. God's sovereign grace, his mercy, his determination of salvation. It's actually been said that Romans 8 brings heaven to our doorstep. But when you get to Romans 9, all heaven and hell breaks loose. Some can't get enough. Some can't stand it. But what it does is it tells us that God has this salvation thing all under control. And some of us want to trust our own mind more than God's. We haven't yet become humble enough to admit that God is God. People will tell you as the day is long that you decide it all. Van Moody in his book, The Eye Factor, says that it's about how building a better relationship with yourself is the key to everything. It refers to the Bible, it refers to God, but the book places a higher value on you rather than God. How you are in control, not God. Van Moody says that knowing yourself, not knowing God, is key. Run from people like that. Listen to God in the Word instead. I love Romans 9. I come to it with joy and caution, though. Joy because I know what's in it, but caution because many don't want it to say what it says. God's word stands. It's best taken at full strength, undiluted. It's good for our souls. Don't water it down. Take God's word as it stands. I think Romans chapters 9 through 11 should come with a warning sign. Do not avoid it. It's really good for you. You should have to sign a disclaimer before you study it. Yes, I will believe everything God says and not explain it away. I don't want you to think that high thinking of doctrine pulls you away from a heart for the lost. That misses the heart of great doctrine. It should spur you on to more evangelism and discipleship. The highest view of the doctrine of election in Romans 8 and Romans 9 should lead us to more fervent evangelism, not less. And we're going to unpack this more as we move through Romans 9, why the doctrines of grace give you a zeal for evangelism, why it is a joy to do it when God is sovereign, how the pressure is off of us, how we don't have to be clever, but we just deliver the simple gospel message. But here's what I want you to see today. Romans 9, in all its goodness, in all its depth of doctrine, starts with a heartfelt confession. And that's what we're going to focus on today. The deeper questions of God's sovereignty and election are yet to come. Today, you see God's heart being reflected in Paul for the people of Israel. Paul is writing to the church in Rome about 57 AD during his third missionary journey, probably from Corinth, Greece. In Romans 15, 19 to 23, he says he preached the gospel from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, modern-day Albania, 
On his three missionary journeys recorded in Acts, he planted churches in what is now known as Turkey and Greece and Macedonia. At this point, he would have had about 25 years of pastoral experience under his belt. Here you have the heart of a pastor. And he knows how doctrine is applied by preaching to change lives and churches. And he's writing to a church that is made up of both Jew and Gentile believers. Young Christians he had not met personally, but he knew what they needed most of all. They needed the gospel. And they didn't just need to know the gospel, they needed to love the gospel and live the gospel. And what we see is, in these first three verses, Paul's great passion His passion, and this is very important. This is why I want us to focus on it today. Paul is at the top of the mountain in Romans 8, and his mind is on a problem back home. He was thinking of those who were missing out on the blessings of Christ. And for good reason. His people were outside of Christ, without hope, without God, even though they thought they were the ones closest to God. They thought they had a corner on the truth. They thought they had a corner on the market with God. They thought they had it wired. And knowing that, Paul just breaks down and bears all. He bears his soul. He bears his heart. And he begins to speak of his kinsmen. Look with me at verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. Some would accuse him of hating Jews now that he was a Christian. He did not stop being a Jew. He did not stop loving his people. The word truth comes first in this first verse. It shows the primacy of truth. It's about the truth in Christ, the Messiah. Paul uses a phrase like this, I'm telling the truth, I am not lying, every time he's under attack by his opponents. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 30, he says, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows I'm not lying. He says, my conscience, literally, that means with knowledge. It's the knowledge you have of yourself. It's the instinctive sense of right and wrong that you have that produces guilt when violated. It's like God has put a warning system into all of us that activates when we choose to ignore or to disobey him. He says, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Your conscience can't always be trusted. Your conscience is fallible. It doesn't always judge things rightly. Paul's conscience was under the control of the Holy Spirit. You want your conscience under the control of the Holy Spirit. He was being true. This is not just having a natural love for his people. This is not national pride. This is gospel love he has for the people of Israel. You know, evangelism is a matter of love. Loving Jesus and loving others and then sharing the gospel with them and living it before them. And Paul says, I I tell the truth, I lie not. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. He calls two witnesses to testify to the truth of what he's saying. His conscience is giving supporting evidence and testifies in support of him. Verse 2, he says, and this is the point, he says, I have great sorrow In my heart, great sorrow is the first word here. It emphasizes sadness, distress. He's having sadness. He's having distress. He says, I have unceasing anguish in my heart. That's grief. That's heaviness. It's continual. It's unceasing. It's unstopping. It's constant. 
He is having intense anxiety in his heart, in his inner self, in his, in his mind. Because he is grieved over the spiritual condition of his fellow Israelites. Much like the Old Testament prophets were, who lamented the sin and resulting judgment of God on the people of Israel. In Jeremiah chapter 4 we read, Oh my anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain, oh the agony of my heart. My heart pounds within me, I cannot keep silent. My people are fools. They do not know. They are senseless children. They have no understanding. They are skilled in doing evil. They do not know how to do good. And so like the prophets who lamented Israel's unfaithfulness, Paul laments Israel's unbelief. Then he says something very shocking. Verse 3. I could wish that I myself were accursed. That's the Greek word anathema. It means someone rejected and denied status with God. It means someone set apart or set aside by God for destruction in eternal hell. Jericho and the Canaanite cities conquered by Israel were said to be anathema. He says, I wish that I were accursed and cut off from Christ. Not a believer, not going to heaven. For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. This is a shocking statement from Paul. What is he saying? This is like Moses when Israel worshipped the golden calf. Moses asked God that he would blot his name out of the book if he would not forgive his people. Exodus 32, 32. And Paul is saying he is willing to sacrifice his salvation for the sake of Israel if, if only they would be saved. What this is, is a deep expression of love for his brethren, his fellow countrymen, a race, a nation, a body of people, ethnic Israel, a lost race, a lost nation, a lost body of people. And Paul is saying, I will substitute myself for them. This is Christ-like love. He's expressing grief in his heart for his people. He's pouring it out. They were so much on his mind. They have rejected the very Christ, and so he says, wait, Christ has given us so great a salvation, and they're rejecting Christ? I'm grieved. He's on the top of the mountain in Romans 8, praising the glories of God's grace, and he says, I'm willing to give up my salvation for them. Now, he knew this couldn't happen. He just said Romans 8, 38 and 39, which ties in with John 10, 27 and 28. Where Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, I give them eternal life, they will never perish, no one will snatch them out of my hand. But Paul was humanly willing to trade his salvation for theirs. He could not, but he felt like that. He was being honest, he was being loving, this is how he felt. Notice the huge mood swing. Any of you prone to mood swings? From the pinnacle of joy over salvation in Romans 8 to the depths of despair over Israel's rejection of Christ in chapter 9. Back in Romans 8, verse 35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
the love of Christ demonstrated for us on the cross, the greatest act of love ever, when Jesus died on the cross, affects our eternity? We read in Romans 8 that, that no one can bring a charge against God's elect that would threaten their security in what Jesus has done for them, that whatever happens works together for my good, the good that only God can see, and he conforms me into the image of Christ. And then he gets to verses 38 and 39. I am convinced that neither death, life, angels, principalities, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, nor any other created thing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He could not be separated from Christ. But here is Paul, pinnacle of joy over what God has done, and then to the depths of despair. And Paul is a converted Jew. He knows and understands now what the Old Testament was saying all along. He knows that the only way his Jewish brethren can ever be justified is by faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. So he wants them to know of Christ. He wants them to know him and be saved. So when he thinks of Israel, he goes from joy to sorrow as he realizes they're blinded. They cannot see that Jesus is the Messiah, the one they've been looking for for so long. They missed. Now Israel's exclusion from Christ is surprising. Their estrangement from Jesus doesn't make sense to us. How could people given God's covenantal promises, not be a part of the new community he has formed? Why did so many Jews refuse to believe? So an outsider looking in would be puzzled. But there is hope for Israel in Romans 9 through 11. God is not through with Israel. What we see here is a heart that God puts in to the redeemed for the lost. And as we see this heart, we also see the attributes and character of God. His love, his mercy, his greatness. Paul's great passion reflects the heart of God. He is in anguish over Israel. Now, in this group, this big group that Paul is anguished over, whom he didn't know all of them, of course. Some wanted to kill him. They hated what he stood for, much like he did with Stephen earlier on before he got saved. But you see this heart of God being shared by Paul and bleeding out into Romans 9. The breaking heart of a lover of people. God-given compassion. The depths of a heart burdened by the lostness of people. You know how it goes. Sometimes when you're experiencing something very beautiful and a a blessing from God, you think about those who are missing out, right? So in Romans 8, Paul celebrates the gospel that leaves us uncondemned and unseparated. And he pens the words, Christ Jesus our Lord. And as he does that, his mind goes to those who are condemned and separated. He has just talked about how we are uncondemned and unseparated from God, and he's thinking, wow, there are so many that are condemned. There are so many that are separated. He's got a heart for the lost, and he's willing to be cursed for his people because his brothers and sisters from Israel are separated 
from Christ. What would be the equivalent for us today? Maybe it's unbelievers in the professing church. Maybe it's workmates or classmates or neighbors or family members. And it really depends on your background. I grew up in, in the liberal Protestant church. So I have a burden for people who are in churches that deny the authority of Scripture and deny the deity of Christ. You might have been a Mormon. You may have a deep passion for Mormons to come to Christ. You may have grown up Catholic. You want Catholics to come to know Christ. You might have people that you know who think they have religion right but are dead wrong. It's really any group of people you have an affinity for. You may be burdened for people, even in certain life stages, maybe mothers or fathers or plumbers or lawyers or policemen or your coworkers, your teammates, whoever are your people. Now, how did Firefighters for Christ come about? A firefighter wanted to, meet, wanted to reach firefighters for Christ. It's whomever God has put on your heart in an evangelistic way. This is, this is highlighting, this passage is highlighting God's love in us that generates our love of others. It's the burden that God gives us for the lost. What was Paul's first great passion? It was Christ. He loved Christ. And his other great passion was people coming to know Christ, being saved by Christ. And so he preached Christ to all. He preached Christ to all. It makes me want to ask you, do you know Jesus Christ? If you died today, where would you go? How do you know you have Christ? Have you seen a change in your life? Do you have a love for God? Do you have a heart for others? Is there a growing holiness and purity of life brought about by God? And if you're not a believer, what prevents you from turning your life over to Christ? Is it admitting that you've been wrong all along? Is it having to face your family and friends? Is it having to give up your sin? Because those who don't know Christ love their sin more than Christ. If you're a believer, you hate your sin. It drags you down. But what keeps you from Christ? You need to repent. It's a command 70 times in the New Testament. Repent or perish. Do not reject Christ. Be saved from this perverse generation. God has commanded all people to repent. Have you? Have you changed your mind? Have you changed the way you're living? Have you acknowledged that you are a sinner? Are you willing to renounce your sins? Have you changed your view about God and Christ and yourself and your neighbor? Turn to God and commit to follow his will for your life. Come to the end of yourself. Turn from your sins now. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. In the garden, Christ was grieved over the impending sacrifice to the point of bloody sweat and tears. Christ willingly let himself be accursed for us, cut off from the land of the living for a time so that as he bore our griefs and sorrows, as he bore our sin, he might make a way for us to be saved. And in this work, he brings us to God. He said, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. You need to experience true saving faith. Commit your life and surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the truth. Those who love Jesus, love others. Those who know truth, 
share truth. Those who love Jesus love others deeply, and those who know the truth share the truth. Here are three ways you can apply this, what we see in this passage. Number one, express your grief. Express your grief over unbelief. New hearts reach dead hearts. Who is your heart breaking for? Who do you lie awake at night thinking about because they're not saved? Who is your heart crushed for because they are unregenerate? Who is your heart burdened for? Who's your Israel? Pour your heart out to God about it. Share it with your small group. In your joy over salvation, your mountaintop of Romans 8, don't forget about unbelievers. This is what Romans 9, 1 and 2 and 3 is telling us. Paul didn't forget about unbelievers in his joy over salvation. I have four people constantly on my mind who are not saved and who are rejecting the gospel. Who's your heart breaking over? Express that grief. It's okay. Express the grief. And secondly, engage the lost. Engage the lost. Okay, your heart is broken. What will you do about it? What did Paul do? He preached Christ and him crucified. He said, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. You need to think like this. They've been, people are captured by Satan to do his will. I have to go on their behalf and preach the gospel to them. Which means we have to shift our priorities. What if I was to take your checkbook, actually no one has those anymore, your, look at your bank account, or your calendar, your thoughts, what would they reveal? What priorities would be exposed? When was the last time you gave a witness for Christ to an, a friend, or a neighbor, or an enemy, or a stranger? When was the last time you introduced someone to Jesus? You know, if there is no anguish in our hearts for the lost, what is it indicating to us? Are we lost? Do we have a worldly mindset? Do you have a lukewarm kind of faith or a calloused heart? A heart caught up with the world, the flesh, and the devil? A heart without understanding of the need to evangelize? Maybe a distracted heart. Maybe sports distracts you or your art class distracts you or your job distracts you or maybe all the difficulties of your life or TV shows or music or pulp fiction or maybe even good books. Some always have a novel in their hand, but it is novel for them to preach the gospel. And I have found this. Being around people who are feeling a certain way makes you feel that way at times, happy or sad. Just recently, I received an email from a customer service representative at a company, and at the bottom was this quote, I love smiling. Smiling is my favorite. Some of you know where that comes from. But it made me smile. A suggestion is contagious. It spurs us on. So when you are around people burdened for the lost, you become more burdened for the lost. Go hang around people like that. Find a person burdened for the lost and become their best friend. Become best friends with Ed Trenner. You'll catch a burden for the lost. Stick to them like glue. And get out of your comfort zone. We all know growth is painful. Grow the nerve of evangelistic zeal. Exercise that muscle and you'll find yourself more passionate about lost souls. Go around your neighborhood. Talk to people. 
open your eyes. There are lost people everywhere, far away and close by. We're going to see this as we go on in Romans 9, but I want to encourage you with this, that an understanding of God's providence and sovereignty does not breed passivity. It breeds passionate desire to give a passionate plea to all who hear to repent and believe the gospel. Because you love Jesus and you love them. You tell them their sins will be their ruin. Tell them there is no other way. Tell them that Jesus came to die for sinners. Tell them they're going to hell if they do not radically repent of their sin and trust Christ. Give them the gospel on their deathbed before they take their dying breath. And by the way, all of us are on our deathbed. All those deathbeds look different. We could all be vaporized in five seconds. Get gripped by the gospel and give it to the God-rejecting. Charles Spurgeon said, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Express your grief. Engage people with the gospel. And third and lastly, expect a response. Expect a response. Positive or negative. Everyone's going to respond. Positively or negatively. Be ready to rejoice with the angels when a sinner repents. But don't expect those you are grieved over to share your concern for their soul. If they're not saved, they love their sin more than Christ. And only God can open their heart to the gospel. They, they may mock your attempts. They may push you away. They may express hatred for the very God you love. Some people actually seem not to care about their soul. One person wrote this, I'm not going to heaven and I don't care. Alexander Hitchens, you might not have heard of him, but you have heard of his father, the noted atheist Christopher Hitchens. Alexander Hitchens, son of noted atheist Christopher Hitchens, wrote this, one of the saddest things I've ever read. He said this, I spent my father's final weeks and days at his bedside and watched him draw his final breath and die. And I can assure you that there was no hint of any sort of conversion. In fact, he said, we barely spoke about religion at all except for joint expressions of frustration at the God-botherers who made the rounds in the ICU and other units where dying people could be preyed upon by vulturous Christians. Fellow believers 
be ready to be thought a vulture by those who do not share your love for Christ and concern for their soul. But do not let that stop you. Cling to Christ. My prayer is that we would have a passion for the souls of the lost. That we wouldn't squander the great privileges we've been given. Next week we're going to see Israel's great privileges that couldn't do what only God does. The privileges that pointed them to Christ but couldn't save them. But above all, the prayer is this, that we would see Christ as beautiful, our only treasure, more beautiful to us than any delight or any rejection. Romans 9 is one of my favorite chapters. I hope it will become one of yours as well. I hope that it will be fixed in our hearts so that in our remaining time on earth, we would be sharply focused on God's amazing works. That we would be awestruck at God's unparalleled, unchanging, unassailable, bulletproof salvation plan. But that we would also have a deep passion for lost souls. Lord, we thank you for your grace to us, your mercy in saving us in seeking after us and saving us when we were lost. I pray, Lord, that we would have a passion for the souls of the lost, that we would not squander the great privileges you've given us, and that most of all, above all, we would see Christ as beautiful, our only treasure, more beautiful to us than anything. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.